really seem to feel the need to make things up about the pirates when we get mad at them. I mean, there's so many legitimate reasons to be mad at this team and this organization. Let's just go with reality, huh? Good morning to you. Good Monday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio, where you can find this show, Daily Shot, every Monday through Friday, bright and early. We hope that you set your podcasting platforms to automatic download. That's available on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Anchor, everywhere. Just set it to auto-download. Our podcasts come in there. You pick the ones you want to listen to. Hopefully this will be one of them. The Pirates are 2-7 and seven, coming off a three-game sweep at Wrigley Field that was much worse than what a three-game sweep sounds like on its surface. Uh, it's not that they were blowouts. It's that they just don't hit. And they do some dumb things. And they make some dumb decisions. And they're an exasperating team to watch right now. Through these first nine games, um, they've been a chore. They really have. That starts with Derek Shelton and his management. I found absolutely abhorrent his decision to lift Stephen Brault after three perfect innings that took only 35 pitches. Yes, I heard his explanation that there's a piggyback system in place. Yes, Brault's coming off an injury, albeit several months ago, and hasn't been completely stretched out. But I'm sorry, sometimes you just have to watch the game and adjust. Brault was buzzing through the Cubs, and he was working at a great pace. That is not something that you want to interrupt. He had every right to go back out there and face the top three of their order. Again, I'm not saying this as if it impacted the game. Uh, It could have easily. I'm saying this strictly from the standpoint of wanting your manager to be able to think beyond the script. Something that's now become Shelton's favorite word when it comes to defending some of the strange decisions he's making, not least of which are the lineups. The lineup he put out there yesterday at Wrigley Field had virtually no chance to compete, and as a result, it didn't. Pirates ended up losing in 11 innings, 2-1. to one. The game could have gone on forever. It could still be going on right now. They wouldn't have scored another run, not with that group that they'd sent out there. So there's that. There's Joey Cora sending Jacob Stallings home with zero outs. You know, they always tell you when you first start playing baseball, you never make the first out of the inning at third base. Never. Well, you sure don't make it at home plate either. You know, I, I still can't believe I saw that. Shelton referred to Joey Cora after that as one of the best third base coaches in the game. I heard a lot of that when he was serving under Clint Hurdle, too, even as Hurdle would occasionally cringe, and I mean publicly so, at some of the calls that Cora made. I have not seen that. I have not seen that Joey Cora is one of the third base, one of the best third base coaches in baseball. I don't know where that comes from. I don't understand it. I was very surprised that 
he was kept around. Out of all the guys that they changed on the manager's staff, I thought he'd be among the first to go. He's still there, incredibly. So there's that. There's Kevin Newman running into an out at third base on a bouncer right to shortstop. It's not as if shortstop isn't the position that he plays, you know, so he'd have some idea of what their shortstop was going to do with that ball. He was at second, ran right into the out at third. Gruesome stuff. There are legitimate things to get upset about. Heck, if it if you're one of those people that just fixates on nothing but payroll, that's legit. Go nuts. Be angry about payroll. The stuff that lights me up is when fans freak out over things like they're tanking, they're deliberately tanking, they're trying to get the number one overall pick. These are people who don't understand baseball at all. They probably don't even follow baseball. They just follow whatever's being discussed on the various talk shows and think that that's gospel. Major League Baseball's draft is nothing like the other drafts. You have no idea in any given year who's going to be the best player. You can think you do. The scouts think they do. Baseball America's analysts think they do. But they don't. Mike Trout was the number 24 overall pick. Albert Pujols lasted until the seventh round. I could do this all day. These things happen only in baseball. Yes, there are exceptions. You know, there's a Tom Brady that goes in the sixth round. You'll miss on someone occasionally in football, but it's nothing like what it is in baseball. Nothing at all. So you don't tank in baseball for a draft pick. If you did tank for a draft pick, you sure wouldn't do it in 2020. For those of you who don't know, among the bazillion things that were discussed between Major League Baseball and the Players Association during those contentious labor agreements talks that they had this summer leading into this shortened schedule was that the commissioner, Rob Manfred, would be the only one to determine the draft order next year. Why they left it up to him, I don't know. It's just one of those things I think that was just kind of shelved at the very end and they were like, whatever, we'll get to it. But he has the unilateral authority just for next year to dictate a draft order or a draft order format, whether there's a lottery or whatever. And the reason for that, I guess, is that you don't know when the season will end or if it'll be completed. you know. And then what do you do? Do you take the team that just got off to a lousy start and hand it to them, or do you come up with some kind of lottery or fairer system? Who knows? The point is, the Pirates don't know either. Nobody knows. Nobody knows in what order anyone's going to take. They could end up with the worst record and not get the pick. So the idea that they're... They're doing these dumb things or putting out these bad lineups because they're trying to lose for a draft pick is just beyond idiocy. And yet you hear it constantly, constantly and casually, too. If you want to get mad about something, if you want to find a real reason to shake your fist about the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2020 through these nine games, I'm going to give it to you. The top four of the Pirates' order, which was going to be 
unquestionably this team's foundation if they were going to compete. You might remember that I wrote earlier this summer, these four guys were the one thing in this process that was going to be not optional. They had to perform. They had to produce at least what they did in 2019 and maybe a little bit better. Well, guess what? Kevin Newman, your projected leadoff hitter, he did hit a home run yesterday in Chicago, but his batting average is at 179. Brian Reynolds, who was one of the best hitters at his position as a rookie last year in the majors, is at 143, with no homers, virtually no pop. Adam Frazier had the one big home run last week against the Brewers at PNC Park. Otherwise, he's batting 167. Josh Bell, he of 37 homers and 114 RBIs last year. Looked like Willie Stargell for about a month and a half. He's at 189. Not one of them is even within 10 points of the Mendoza line. We can talk about small samples until we're blue in the face. The fact is, in this season, that's 20% of the sample. It's beyond incomprehensible that all four of these guys went into this season swinging as they did. And by the way, all four of them did go into it. Because I watched the summer camp. I watched the exhibitions. They weren't swinging any better than this. They carried those slumps in. I can't possibly even take a stab at how much a four and a half month layoff or four months at least being out of cages could affect everyone. There's been no doubt from watching baseball over the past month, including the stuff that led up to the real games, that pitchers were way ahead of hitters. But to this degree, I mean, it's not like there aren't other people in baseball who are hitting. It's not like there isn't Colin Moran in their own lineup who's hitting the ball. It's not like Jose Osuna, on those days when he's actually allowed to play, hasn't been hitting the ball. So what's up with these four guys? What happened here? Are they going to turn it around? Sure. I mean, yeah. There's, there's a history there for all four of them. And other than Frazier, I, I think you can say that there's, you know, Real pedigree. I, don't, I still don't. Frazier's just been so inconsistent. I don't mean to bury the guy. He's just, you never know what you're going to get. But with Bell, Newman, and Reynolds, what we saw last year wasn't a mirage. They did what they did the whole way through, and all four of them are just dying right now. They're not even having competitive at bats. Bell's drawing the occasional walk and at least stroking the occasional single like he did yesterday in Chicago that ended up getting Stallings thrown out at home thanks to the best third base coach or one of the best third base coaches in baseball. But these four guys, all of them, to be slumping like this to start the year, 
you know, we can take all these other variables that I discussed, these other, you know, the decisions and the bad lineups and everything else, and even the lousy supporting cast, the occasionally lousy bullpen, the, the way too short starts, and none of it would matter because these four guys aren't producing. None of it would matter. They can't even say that there's a you know a new manager because they kept the same hitting coach. They kept Rick Eckstein. They kept Rick Eckstein in large part because of the remarkable job that he did with these four guys last year. They swore by him. I, I'm not guessing at this part. I, I know for a fact that they really pushed management even before... Derek Shelton's hire was complete to make sure that Rick Eckstein would stay on the staff. Well, where is it? Where is it? When you're talking about what the Pirates 2020 season actually stands for, it's not tanking. It's giving them the benefit of the doubt here. It's the thing that Shelton and Ben Charrington keep repeating again and again, and that is that they want to get better. Go out there every day and get better. Let's see guys make improvement individually and ultimately collectively. It sounds like a nice goal. It's a it's certainly a safe one. Unless you don't. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Ben Charrington in, in particular was asked, this was about a week and a half ago on a, on a national TV appearance, about his goals. He was on with some other GM. I don't remember which one. And they asked the GM, what's the goal for the year? And a guy goes, oh, World Series, blah, blah, blah. Of course, World Championship, whatever. And they asked Ben Charrington, and he doesn't want to look like a fool. And I don't blame him for it. He's not going to say World Series. But he said very calmly and in his typical tone, we want to get better. Our goal is getting better. Shelton says the same thing. And it sounds like the sort of thing that you can get away with virtually anything and say afterward, well, we met our goal, we got better. Unless you don't. Unless you visibly regress. This is a concern. This is a concern, I think, bigger than the actual record. I don't know that very many people were taking the Pirates seriously as contenders. I at least gave it, you know, a possibility based on what they did in the first half of last season and having most of those guys back. But my optimism was based primarily, and I said so at the time, on these four guys. I didn't even count Moran. I didn't see Moran having a, a good anything. I didn't believe in him. I was wrong. But it never occurred to me that these four guys simultaneously wouldn't hit at all. At all. I'm not sure who there is to get mad at, to swing back to my original discussion here. I'm not sure if, you know, getting mad actually would achieve anything anyway. But, you know, it, it, it feels like a healthy thing for anyone who pays attention to sports, right? That's why we give out those foam bricks, right? But they need to turn it around. All four of these guys, and Rick Eckstein, and this manager, or else they can forget 
embracing any kind of getting better mantle. This coaching staff and this manager were brought in to make these players better, not worse. So far, they've been worse, individually and collectively. When we come back, a little bit of hockey. Yesterday's special edition daily shot that I did to go over the Penguins game one loss to the Canadians in Toronto. I tried to lay out a series of possible changes that Mike Sullivan could make both to his lineup and schematically, or at least from an emphasis standpoint, heading into Game 2, which is tonight at 8.20 p.m. And I also predicted that none of those would actually come to fruition. Knowing who this head coach is and how much he believes in what it is that he does. And they absolutely will not. The second segment of this show is always brought to you by the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. During normal times, one in seven people in our region are food insecure, including one in five children. Not knowing where your next meal is coming from can be a scary thought. And now, with the pandemic, the need for food is that much greater. If you are in need of food assistance, or if you would just like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, visit pittsburghfoodbank.org. Make sure you spell out those first three words. Don't abbreviate them. PittsburghFoodBank.org. One dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals. Here's what Sullivan had to say when he was asked yesterday about looking back at the video from Game 1. Sure. I, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of the game that we really liked. And, and after watching the game film, it, uh, it just provided that much more affirmation. So, you know, I, I felt, I felt we, uh, our energy was really good. I thought we were playing on our toes. I thought we had a great start, even though, uh, even though we didn't score and we ended up down a goal. Um, so there, there, was, there was a lot to like in that game. Uh, and that's what I told our players today. There are some areas where we know we can get better, where we can Im improve. Uh, but by no means was it uh, was it a game that we were, uh, you know, overly discouraged about. There, there was, in, in a lot of instances, we we felt we felt really good about a lot of aspects of our game. Rough translation of all that, not changing a thing. You will not see a change in goal. You will not see Jared McCann come out. You won't see Patrick Marlowe come out. You won't see Jack Johnson come out. You won't see any changes to the power play. You won't see any changes to the PK. Not that the PK was an issue. You won't see any changes, is what I'm saying here, basically. The closest Sullivan would come to acknowledging any shortcoming on the Penguins' part in Game 1 was what he felt was an insufficient push into Carey Price's crease. Uh, 
I'm not going to be one to glow about any particular aspect of the Penguins' performance that night, but I'm not buying that. I, I saw people, plenty of people, hindering Price physically and visually. I saw pucks being sent from a lot of different places. And yes, yeah, some of them were harmless. Some of them were perimeter shots, but I also saw plenty that were generated with traffic and with bad intent. I also saw Carey Price at his best making sure that those didn't matter. And I also saw at the other end clumsiness on the overtime goal. Brendan Gallagher made a really nice rush down the right side, but he took both defensemen with him. Jack Johnson and Justin Schultz kind of caromed off of Gallagher and went all the way into the back corner. That left a couple of forwards to awkwardly handle the slot for themselves, one of them being Zach Aston Reese, who's not a defenseman and kind of did this like awkward goaltending stance as Jeff Petrie very easily pulled the puck around him and fired it home for the winner. Sullivan's explanation there was that the Penguins were guilty of over-back-checking. I mean, there was another forward that was back in that mix. It was Teddy Bluger. He was also going after Gallagher. So I kind of get what he's saying, but that doesn't, doesn't absolve the play. You know, that they were over-eager or whatever it is. He's trying to find ways, Sullivan is, to justify the Game 1 lineup and the performance. And you know what? That's fine. If it's a best of seven, but it's not. If the Penguins lose tonight, they are as toast as toast gets. They will not be coming back. They will not be the second team in NHL history to overcome a 2-0 deficit and win a best of five. They will not beat Carey Price three games in a row if they lose tonight. This will not happen. I'm not saying this to be fatalistic. I'm saying this because it's just the most realistic possible thing you could say based on a virtual century of precedent. The Canadians will be feeling really, really good about themselves if they win tonight and at the same time still have absolutely no pressure on them. None. They could gag in the final three games and nobody would hold it against them in Montreal. They'd all be like, yay, good job, boys. Way to stick with it. That was fun. No one will care. I mean, they care about the Canadians, but they won't care about this particular outcome. They just won't. This is the game you have to win. And this is the game where you have to be real about what you just witnessed. Maybe, maybe behind closed doors, Sullivan and Mark Recchi and Jacques Martin and Mike Buckley and everyone else that's involved in their process were as honest and open about what they just witnessed as could be. But I don't think so, because some of that would have come to the surface. Something more than just, well, we didn't get to the net hard enough, boys. That is the oldest, blandest possible thing you can say after a great goaltending performance in the playoffs. Everybody says it. Everybody does. 
And the reason is they look over there, they see that there's a great goalie, and they go, well, these shots didn't work, so let's try shots while we're punching them in the mouth. I think that already happened. I, that's not to say they couldn't get nastier, they couldn't get more bodies there and everything else, but that's also not who they are. That's not the roster that they've built. You've got a couple of guys on this team that'll do that in Patrick Hornquist, to a lesser extent, Jake Gensel. The other guys aren't going to matter nearly as much because they're playing on lines that aren't going to score regardless. So I don't get the sense that these coaches dealt with game one honestly. Now, maybe they'll get away with it. Maybe they'll get away with it. Maybe the Penguins will uh, bounce back and put a few pucks behind Price early and kind of dictate the game and maybe dispirit the Canadians a little bit, something they never really had a chance to do because of the Montreal counter by Jesperi Kotkaniemi late in the first period, despite the Penguins' 18-6 shots advantage. Maybe all of that will happen. Maybe Sid and Gino will pump in a couple and everyone will go, well, here it goes, this is how this should have gone all along. But maybe they won't. Maybe Murray will leak in one early and the Canadians will start feeling that much better about themselves. And I just don't think that this game is one that you should have left to maybes. I can't believe that in their heart of hearts they feel like they're sending out their best lineup with this group. There's no way they watched McCann and Johnson and Murray and thought, here's our best guys. But he was going to hang on to these guys until his back was going to be pushed against the wall as opposed to the team's, meaning Sullivan. We'll see how that plays out. I mean, like I said, it might work out in his advantage and he can stick it in all of our faces, but that still doesn't mean the right approach was taken. It'll be fun. We'll, hey, we'll talk about it tomorrow, right? Thanks for listening to this one. Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your bike, your computer, your window, your gun. Safety is a habit. Every day you lock and secure your home, car, and everything you want to keep safe. Gun safety and responsible storage are no different and the best way to help prevent accidents, misuse, and theft. If you own a firearm, it's your responsibility to store it safely when it's not in use. Choose a system that works for you. Cable locks, lock boxes, and gun safes are some of the most effective ways to protect your family and keep firearms secured. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure and find out how to get a free firearm safety kit. Visit projectchildsafe.org. That's projectchildsafe.org. If you have a firearm, own it, respect it, and secure it. Brought to you by the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Bureau of Justice Assistance.